0: Pretty much anyone who's ever had a conversation with me about my favorite bands knows that my Mount Rushmore of 70s rock are KISS, Aerosmith, Cheap Trick, and a little-known band called STARS. So imagine my surprise when I discovered a new book called They Just Seem a Little Weird that discusses the influence these four bands have had on rock and roll. I mean, KISS, Aerosmith, and Cheap Trick, okay, but I didn't think that anyone who wrote about 70s rock would have included STARS. And when I discovered that the author of the book lived in Toronto, I was confused. I thought that I was the only person living in Toronto that knew enough about all four of these bands that would have possibly written a book like this. When I searched out the author, Doug Broad, on Facebook, I saw that not only did he go to NYU at the same time as me, but his Facebook friends included my college roommate and the woman who hired me for my first job in the music industry in New York. There's a backstory here that I definitely needed to investigate. Welcome to The Creationist, a podcast about people who create. I'm your host, Steve Waxman. One of the things that's fun about books like They Just Seem a Little Weird are the arguments that they initiate about which bands actually held influence over one another. This book is no different. Even before anyone had read a single word, Doug Broad had people questioning who he was writing about.
1: I I know you probably hear this as well, because people love their bands. They love their particular bands. And when I was telling people I wanted to write a book about these four bands, I always heard, well, what about Rush? What about Angel? What about ACDC? And I'm like, well, the the, the idea of the the idea of this book is is to find four bands that represented a certain moment in the 70s. They were all US bands. And all of these bands shared something really, really specific to me that I wanted to bring out to, you know, to to readers. They all took rock and roll and made it into a show.
0: I don't know about you, but I love reading books about music, its influence on popular culture and the bands that changed our lives. As a former editor of Spin Magazine, I would have thought that Doug Broad would have been an unlikely candidate to write a book arguing on behalf of bands like these. Of course, I soon found out how wrong I was to make that presumption.
1: I mean, I've always been a fan of Kiss, Cheap Trick, and Aerosmith, and I came kind of late to the party with stars. I didn't really uh, get to know too much about them until they did a, a bunch of reunion shows in the early 2000s in New Jersey and in Manhattan. And that's when I started getting into them. But I was always thinking of a book idea. I wanted to write a book. I wanted to write a music book. and it dawned on me that all, that members of all four of the bands played on Gene Simmons' 1978 solo album. You had uh, Joe Perry guesting on guitar, you had Rick Nielsen on guitar, and Richie Rano from Stars also played guitar on the album. And I thought that that would be a really cool jumping-off point to sort of investigate how these four bands interacted, how they converged, what they shared during the 70s and beyond.
0: What was the first step in you starting to figure out what kind of book you were going to write?
1: Well, it's funny. I have a, a few books in my collection that I, I really love that kind of acted as, as inspirations for me. One book was called Fire and Rain by David Brown, which looked at 1970, but through the lens of the Beatles, Cosby, Stills, Nash & Young, James Taylor and one other band whose name escapes me um, and then Mark Harris wrote a book called uh, Pictures at an Exhibition," which is about the films that were nominated for academy Awards in nineteen sixty nine and how all of those for all of those movies kind of shared uh, people, shared ideas um, shared studios and it was an interesting way to approach bands, I thought, to sort of tell a collective biography. And I settled on these four bands and I started doing some preliminary research and I found that there were a lot of connections that people didn't know about. So I decided to put it into a proposal. I I, I wrote a proposal. I tried to get an agent. I spoke with a bunch of agents a lot of them thought that the the idea might have been a little niche or it just wasn't for them they didn't they didn't really know the bands a few agents responded very favorably and all told i i had four agents that were interested in representing me on the strength of this proposal i found one who i really really liked and he knew the bands he was very excited about the proposal and the idea and just getting this book out there, and he was really helpful. And we landed a contract with. Um, it was then called De Capo Press. They did a lot. They do a lot of music books. But then during the writing of the book, um, Decapo was absorbed by Hachette Publishing. So the book is actually coming out through Hachette. So yeah, so that's kind of the genesis of the book. And obviously, a lot went on between May. 2018, when I actually uh, signed the contract, and February 2020, when I delivered the final manuscript.
0: But when did the idea hatch in your brain that this is the book that you want to write?
1: Uh, the idea hatched around 12 years ago, and it was the kind of thing where, I, I know you probably hear this as well, because people, people love their bands. They love their particular bands. And when I was telling people I wanted to write a book about these four bands, I always heard, well, what about Rush? What about Angel? What about ACDC? And I'm like, well, the, 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 idea, of the, the idea of this book is, is to find four bands that represented a certain moment in the 70s. They were all U.S. bands. They all shared similar influences, many of the same influences, They all played to similar audiences or actually the same kinds of audiences. And they all shared many different personnel. A lot of them shared producers. A lot of them shared engineers. They shared, oh, my God. I mean, I I found so many connections between so many of these bands. I mean, for instance, Jack Douglas produced Cheap Trick. He produced Stars. He did not produce Kiss, but he, of course, produced Aerosmith. Jay Messina, his engineer, worked with all four of the bands. They shared roadies. There was so much interaction between these bands. STARS opened many, many tours with Aerosmith. Cheap Trick toured with Aerosmith. KISS and Aerosmith played shows together very early on. And then later on, they did a huge tour together. So there were all these kinds of interconnections, and I thought that that would be an interesting way to tackle the story of 70s hard rock. And all of these bands shared something really, really specific to me that I wanted to bring out to to readers. They all took rock and roll and made it into a show. During the early 70s and into the mid-70s, a lot of bands were very serious. I mean, Led Zeppelin's a great band, but they were serious. You know, they they didn't look like they were having fun on stage. The same with the band like, Black Sabbath. I mean, they were super serious. And the bands that I'm covering all shared this really theatrical kind of showmanship and they wanted to be rock stars. I mean, in Cheap Trick's case, they were rock stars of a different breed because you had these two gorgeous guys and these two kind of doofuses. But that was part of their shtick and part of the theatricality of the band. So it was just kind of this amalgam of different connections and similar creative choices that these bands made, which I thought kind of would make an interesting story to tell.
0: I'll tell you, I, I mean, I've read a lot of stories about Kiss and Kiss's history. And that was one of the things I was wondering about going into the project when I was, when I was starting to read the book. It's like, what is Doug going to tell me that I haven't already read about Kiss. And right off the top, you start with the story of Tom Worman coming out of the Kiss loft with his boss, having just seen Kiss. I had no idea that Tom Worman had anything to do at all with, with Kiss. And of course, you then go on, and I, I thought it was really interesting the way, um, I think for three of the four bands, not I don't remember you doing it with STARS, but with, certainly with with KISS, Cheap Trick, and Aerosmith, you talk about the A&R process from the beginning, which I think is a really interesting way to introduce each of these bands.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's funny. Um, Tom Werman was a very, very junior—I don't think he was an even, even an executive in, in 1973, 72. He was more of like just a rep. and. As he told me, you know, he he was behind bringing some big bands to his boss, a guy named uh, Don Ellis and at at Epic um, and, and Don passed. So Tom was a little concerned pushing Kiss too hard on Don. Actually, they were called Wicked Lester at the time. And that's when he first met them. But then Tom didn't really have much to do with KISS at all or anything to do with KISS once they became KISS. But being at Epic Records, he ended up having a huge influence on the career of Cheap Trick. Um, Not only did he sign the band to the label, but he also produced a few of their very important early albums. He did not have anything to do with Stars or anything to do with Aerosmith but he was a major driving force for that kind of music in the 70s. I mean, he was also behind a lot of Ted Nugent records and he he really kind of made his bones when he started producing bands like Motley Crue and Poison and the whole hair metal thing.
0: So given how many sto- how many books are out there about the history of Kiss, and there are fewer but they do exist on it's on Aerosmith, especially uh the book Walk This Way. Um there's uh a lot of fallacies, a lot of imaginary history on Cheap Trick. <laughs> and there's, there's next to no history really on stars. Starting with Kiss, given that there's so much out there, how did you find new things to write about that maybe people hadn't heard before?
1: Well, the key to writing a book like this when you get limited participation from the band members, I mean, I'll tell you, I, I spoke with uh, Paul Stanley for the book. I did not speak with Gene Simmons for the book, although I did interview him um, around 10 years ago for a piece I did for Spin Magazine when I was working there. Um, I did not uh, interview Ace or Peter Chris, although I did, you know, obviously I tried and I tried to connect with them. So what you do is you, 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 you set your sights elsewhere. You interview people who work with them. You interview people from Casablanca Records. You interview people from O'Coin, uh, which is a management company. You interview roadies. That's where you get a lot of stuff that no one else gets. I mean, obviously, you know, I, I used um, their mem- the band members' memoirs as a resource. And it was a very good resource, although a lot of them have different versions of what went down. But a lot of them have the same versions of what went down, but they just say it differently. So as a as a writer you try to sort of synthesize those attitudes and those perspectives and try to come out with some other version maybe of the truth but a truth that's grounded in reality. So that's kind of the challenge when you when you're doing a book like this but it's really helpful. I mean I interviewed 136 people for the book and a lot of them were people that many readers probably never heard of, but have something interesting to say. And, and they were there on the ground during, you know, this whole period. So uh, Cheap
0: Trick, let's talk about Cheap Trick a little bit here because when Cheap Trick came out um, back in 76, I think it was 76 or 77 with the first record, the, the bio was completely made up. And Every time they did an interview, they told a different story about the origins of the band. So, were you able to um, were you able to get a straight answer out of Rick Nielsen? Were you able to get a straight answer out of these guys about how the band came together?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, as you said, when the first album came out, Cheap Trick had been playing for years in the midwest you know playing bars playing 3 4 sets a night in bars really honing their act and when they got signed they didn't want their bio to read cheap trick is a band that came from the midwest you know playing bars four sets a night for they they didn't want that they didn't they didn't want to seem like that kind of band. So they made things up. And, and one of the funny things, uh, you know, they, they, they took things from reality but embellished them in their bio. And one of the things that was totally made up was Bunny Carlos, the drummer, sort of gave a family history. He said that his family was involved in the building of the Panama Canal, and his name was Venezuela. His real first name was Venezuela. And it's funny, I interviewed one of the heads of publicity for Epic at the time, who was basically in charge of disseminating cheap trick information. And she had no idea that that was a lie. She actually thought that he had a South American background. And this is almost 50 years, this is 45 years later. So I thought that was pretty amusing um, that they even pulled the wool over some of their uh, colleagues' eyes. The guy who actually wrote that infamous bio is named Eric Van Lusbader, And he went on to a very successful fiction career um, he's now writing the Jason Bourne novels that, you know, since Robert Ludlum passed away. And he wrote a bunch of shogun or ninja type books. So he's been very successful and, and he, you know, he's he's he was spinning his uh his fiction very early on.
0: You know, it's funny. Um, one of the other interviews that I've done for the podcast is with Ira Robbins, a friend of yours. And I was telling him that the first time that I saw an extended um, feature on Cheap Trick was on the cover of Trouser Press, and I think it was the first issue of Trouser Press I ever bought, and I hurriedly, you know, brought it home and went through the pages and realized at the end of the article, I was like, I have no clearer idea of the reality of this band than I did before. <laughs> yeah,
1: well, I, when I was talking with with both Rick and Bunny, Bunny especially, you know, he likes... Setting the record straight, he knows that a lot of what they did early on was was a goof. And I, I interviewed Ira for the book because he was very close with the band early on, and he he said the same thing you're saying. He, you know, they decided to just be really colorful because that's what got ink. When when bands back then were colorful in their interviews and said strange things and goofy things, that's what a lot of journalists back then responded to. So, Bunny especially tried to set the record straight with me, and and you know, in a way, he was kind. I don't want to say ashamed. Ashamed is the wrong word, but I think the band tried to hide the fact that they were this kind of Midwestern band from like kind of nowhere, Zil, Illinois, and actually Rockford, and. They wanted to seem a little more cosmopolitan. I think that was the goal. Um, So in order to do that, they just created this mystery around them.
0: So what about Aerosmith? I don't think that you actually spoke to any of the members of Aerosmith for this, did you? I did not, no. So where were you getting most of your Aerosmith information from?
1: Um, It's funny. A lot of the Aerosmith information I got from uh, people around them. One person in particular who was very, very instrumental in, in you know, in, in their career and in, in Stars's career and in Kiss's career was this guy named uh, Bob Saikowski. He was also known as Night Bob, and he was a front of house engineer. So he was with Aerosmith from the very, very early days. So he was in, an incredible uh, source of information. I also spoke with the two early managers David Krebs and Steve Lieber. I also had a very long discussion with Tim Collins, who was their manager uh, during their most successful period in the, in the 80s and early 90s. So those people were really instrumental in giving me some really interesting stories. And also Rick Nielsen, who is very, very tight with, with Steven and Joe especially, gave me a lot of great information about the band. And then stars who toured with them, who loved the band but didn't think highly of the people in the band. Well, actually, let me let me rephrase that. They didn't think too highly of of uh, of the Toxic Twins, but uh, they they also had some some great information. So it, it's 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 really essential when doing a book like this that you you, you branch out and try to get as many kind of outsiders who know the score as you can.
0: So stars, Uh, not many people that are listening to this know who stars are. And stars was my favorite band back in the late seventies because they, they really were right in the middle between kiss and Aerosmith in terms of style and substance. And I think, I mean, you do a a really great job of filling in a lot of holes for a fan like myself, but also it becomes pretty clear that they're maligned by many of the bands that you're talking to. And I think personally, and maybe I'm reading into this because of how big a stars fan I was, I think a lot of it was because of the hype that was built up around stars as opposed to the quality of certainly the first two records.
1: Right. I mean, and that that, that was a real eye, eye opener when I was, you know, researching the book and doing the interviews. So just to give the backstory on stars, um, stars were the second band signed by Bill Ocoin after KISS. And stars kind of evolved out of a band called Looking Glass that had a huge hit called Brandy. So the drummer and the bass player of Looking Glass kind of evolved into stars over the years. So when Stars were brought on to O'Coin's management firm, he did not sort of put them through their paces. You know, he didn't do a grassroots kind of build up for the band. They were immediately opening because because Bill O'Coin had a lot of leverage through Kiss. So the band were immediately opening for... ZZ Top, Roxy Music, even, um, gosh, Ted Nugent and all of these bands and Peter Frampton early, early on. And they were always playing big theaters and arenas. And they were never really, they were never really a club band. They never, they never were a bar band. I mean, you look at Kiss, Cheap Trick and Stars and all three of those, sorry, Kiss, Cheap Trick and Aerosmith. All three of those bands really, you know, came up from the clubs. So there was a lot of, I think, resentment that this band got a lot of push and a lot of, you know, muscle behind them without having paid their dues. I'm not saying that that's my belief. I think that that was the belief out there. Um, And I think some saw it as just Bill trying to recreate Kiss's success and you know, that's that's pretty much what Paul Stanley told me. Um, that's what a lot of a lot of other musicians believe. It, Dennis D. Young from Styx, who I interviewed, um, they played with stars early on. He had the same kind of feeling. Yeah. Is it earned? I don't know. I don't think so. I think the 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 proof to me, and I'm sure it is to you, is in the pudding. And you listen to those records, especially the first. Two Stars albums, Stars and Violation. And they're really great albums with great songs, fantastic playing, even into the third record, which a lot of people don't like. The band members themselves don't like, but I think has some of their best songs an album called Attention Shoppers. You know, they were a really, really good band. And I they never got the the kudos they deserved.
0: Well, of course I couldn't agree with you more. Um <laughs> so if we could go I'd like to go back now to the start of the project. How did you get rolling? I mean obviously you would have done a lot of research, but then you'd have to start making some phone calls, making some connections with people.
1: Yeah, I one thing that I that I did, which I'm very grateful I did do is um, when I was writing my proposal for the book, I essentially mapped it out. I wrote an outline for it. I mean, the proposal was was up until that moment the longest thing I had ever written in my life. I mean, I'm an editor by trade. I'm also, a, I mean, I've done a lot of writing, but I never wrote really long pieces. The proposal came in at like 40 pages, 45 pages. It was like 12,000 words. But a lot of that was taken up with a very detailed outline of what was going to be in the book. And I followed it when I started researching it. When I started writing it, so it was it was essential to have that kind of plan in front of me as I did this. You know, when the when the book was accepted, I signed my contract. That's when the obviously the real work begins. And you know, I just started reaching out to people. Of course, I put in my um, requests for all the band members, and I was obviously you know I obviously got all the guys in stars because they were very happy to talk. I think they realized that this you know this this book is going to be, you know, is going to essentially try to put them on the map. And I hope it does in in a a certain way. You know, I, I, I had met many of the Cheap Trick guys earlier, but they were a little hesitant about being involved in the book. Rick, you know, finally gave me a, a few hours for an interview. Um, Bunny um, was, was a little easier to get because he's no longer in the band and he, he really likes to get the story out there. Robin and, and Robin Zander and Tom Peterson both declined for whatever reason. And the Kiss guys were hard to get, too. I mean, you know, I, I couldn't get, like I said, Ace and, and Peter, but I did get uh, Paul and I got Bruce Kulick, who was a guitarist for Kiss for many years. And, the, and Aerosmith, as much as I, I tried, they, they wouldn't agree to, to be interviewed for the book. So I, I had to start sort of spreading out and going through the books that I have and the articles that I have and finding other names of people who are connected. Obviously when I, when I thought of the book, I thought of the people who are involved in all of the bands, people or, or, in, or in a few of those bands. So like people like, you know, Jack Douglas and Tom Worman and, and Jay Messina and Night Bob Sikowski. Unfortunately, Jack Douglas declined to be interviewed as well. Although he was a real, you know, he, he, he he looms very large in the telling of this story since he was kind of the architect of 70s hard rock through his work with these bands and Alice Cooper and New York Dolls and so many others so it was a matter of trying to connect with people and i have to say you know people say a lot of bad things about facebook but but everybody's on facebook and I got a lot of these people through Facebook. And then once you talk to one person, it kind of snowballs. They say, "Have you spoken to so and so yet?" "No, I haven't." "Well, here, here's here's their email." And people get excited about the project. I guess they liked my interview technique and they were happy to pass me along to other people. So the easiest part to me was finding people, I think. The hardest part was getting the people I that were really, really crucial to this to the telling of the story. Right. Well, one of the interesting things,
0: and I think maybe even perhaps the most interesting part of this book is the fact that it is, I mean though it's a history of these four bands and how they intertwined over the course of their careers, it's it's also a um, story of how these four bands ultimately influenced hair metal and grunge. So how did that part of the story kind of evolve for you?
1: Right, that was that was part of the, you know, I, maybe I left this out when I was, I was telling you about how this idea came to me. I thought about these four bands, and I also, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of grunge. I'm not that big a fan of hair metal. I like some of it. But I remember reading a lot of pieces about these bands, and a lot of them cited... Kiss and Aerosmith and Cheap Trick, especially, as influences. And this is, you know, th- these these two sort of subgenres of rock and roll could not be more diametrically opposed. I mean, one is like all flash and pyro and teased hair and makeup, and the other is kind of like flannel and kind of downbeat, gloomy-ish music. And they were really set in opposition, but they both had very similar roots. So I tried to find, well, it wasn't too hard to find, but I I, uh, was able to interview a lot of band members from both sides, from hair metal and grunge, to get their perspective on these bands that I'm writing about. And one in particular, one, one musician in particular, who is incredibly articulate and smart and really really loved the bands was, um, was Kim Thale from Soundgarden. And, you know, he was, he's a little older than, than I am, but we shared very similar kinds of musical upbringing. So I, I could relate to what he was telling me. And, you know, he had very, very, uh, he had a very deep connection with 70s rock, uh, 70s hard rock. So, yes, he was one of my favorite interviews for the for the book. And then I, you know, I I spoke to people like Gilby Clark and and Tracy Guns and and Tie Me Down from Faster Pussycat. And they all had some really interesting things to say about these bands and what they meant to them. It's funny to go back to to, to Kim Thale for a moment. One of the things that he said was so striking to him and, and made him made him want to become a guitarist was the way that Paul Stanley held his guitar. Um, the fact that he held it down low and that he was able to dance and jump while playing was something that he, he was really struck by and was really, it really inspired him.
0: Let's talk about your upbringing with regards to music, your history with music. What were you listening to back in the mid, late 70s? How'd you get into music?
1: yeah so you know i'm a child you know i was born in 64 and i started buying records for real i guess when i was around 10. you know my early my early musical upbringing was like hr puff and stuff soundtrack records and partridge family and bobby sherman and kind of teeny you know teen idol pop but then i started falling in love with with elton john He was like my first big musical, you know, he was mine. Um, Captain Fantastic, that album was like the first rock album I really kind of connected with. But then after that, I, you know, I was a big comic book nerd and I loved horror movies. And when I saw Kiss, um, I saw them on the Mike Douglas show. It was a, a talk show in New York. I think I was around nine or 10 years old when they were on. And I just like that, that did it for me. I was like, this is my, this is my Beatles on Ed Sullivan moment. It's like, who is this guy? It was Gene Simmons. Um, and I just kind of, I fell in love with them there. So I started buying their records and gradually, you know, started falling in love with bands like Cheap Trick, Aerosmith. I was always, I always really admired. I didn't really buy a lot of their records early on. I kind of got into them more later on and I don't know, at some point, you know, KISS was my band from like 74, 75 to 79. And I think a lot, like a lot of people, I kind of dropped off the KISS, you know, train. I kind of left in, I guess it was after Dynasty. I had seen them um, at Madison Square Garden. On that tour, and I loved. I was made for loving you. I actually liked that record a lot, but I, I never kind of paid attention after that because I had moved on musically. Punk and new wave came, and that was it for hard rock for a while. You know, I was really into you know Ramones and Sex Pistols and the Buzzcocks and bands like that. Elvis Costello, Squeeze, and that kind of lasted for for quite a bit. You know, then I then I became a big fan of, of alternative rock and, you know, British guitar rock. And so hard rock kind of was always a part of me, but it kind of was subsumed by a lot of other stuff for a while. Then when I was working at Spin Magazine, that's when Kiss's Sonic Boom album came out. And I heard that record and I was like, this is as good as Love Gun. This is their best record since Love Gun. And that's been quite a while. Because I kind of like, I, I, I saw Kiss in the interim. I saw them without makeup. I saw them, which was a very odd experience. Then I saw them when they returned um, in 90, 96 for the reunion tour. It's, it's funny. I saw, I saw Kiss, uh, Cheap Trick, and the Sex Pistols all in the same week, I believe, in 96, which kind of blew my mind. So yeah, so you know, then I, I kind of got back on the KISS train and I started playing in music again and digging into stuff that I kind of like skirted over. I kind of ignored and slept on revenge for a while. And then playing that again after so many years, I realized this is a great record. This is a great KISS record. So yeah, so that's kind of where it all came from. And then I started getting back into hard rock, Probably 10 years ago, maybe a little longer than that. Um, And one band that I was particularly enamored of, and I still am, is a band called the Wild Hearts. I don't know if you're familiar with them, a British band. Yeah, I am. I toured with them. um, I I, I toured with them as a writer uh, when I worked for Spin. They were opening for the darkness throughout the Midwest when the darkness first came here. And Ginger, who is the, the the lead singer and guitarist of the Wild Hearts, was a huge fan of all four of these bands. And we would always talk about them when we'd see each other. And we became friendly after I did this piece on them. And he he's interviewed for the book as well. Um, and their music is kind of an amalgam of all four bands. So that was actually one of the kind of I guess in, an impetus for, for for looking at hard rock through these four bands as well.
0: Yeah, I I hadn't heard of the Wild Hearts until I read this book, and then I went, I've gone and listened to the music, and you're right, it's, it's fantastic. It really is fantastic. My first
1: album, Earth vs the Wild Hearts, is just is probably one of my favorite debut albums of all time.
0: So, how I don't I don't know that you, you talked about this earlier. Um, how did you find stars?
1: How did I find stars? Good question. So they were never really on my radar in the 70s, for whatever reason. I mean, I I used to see their albums advertised in Cream and Circus, the same with Angel, who I never really paid attention to back then. Stars began doing reunion gigs in the early 2000s. And I happened to go to one. I, I had actually gotten into them. I don't recall how exactly, but I started listening to their music and buying their record, buying their, their CDs when they were reissued. But I saw them at a club called Don Hills in Manhattan, very poorly attended. Not many people were there, but they were terrific. They were playing like they were playing in an arena. Um, and then they did a bunch more reunion shows in New Jersey, went out to those and they were they were great. So that was in the early that was nearly I guess 20 years ago since I first started seeing them. But I always thought that that was I always thought why didn't this band ever do anything cuz they're so good and I'm sure that's kind of your feeling as well. I mean like what what didn't they have that these other bands did have? And that was part of my impetus for writing the book that I wanted to explore how a band on this level, Kiss and Aerosmith, had enormous success. Cheap Trick had pretty good success. Stars had none. And they were cult success, I guess. But I wanted to explore why didn't they succeed where, when all these other bands could? What, did, what didn't they have? And that's what I, I tried to get at in the book.
0: Well, I don't know that you answered the questions in the book, but I th- I think that you've given if people are going to read this book they're going to come to some conclusions themselves and and hopefully go and listen to these records and maybe hear them
1: for the first time, which would be really great. Yeah, it's funny. One of the things that 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 came out in my research for the book, uh, Richie Rana who is a guitarist for Stars, ended up after leaving Stars, or after the band kind of dissolved, he ended up being a, a rock and roll memorabilia dealer. And he started the New York, New Jersey Kiss Conventions or Kiss Expos. So he was actually heavily involved with Kiss as a business, despite having never really toured with them while being under the same management. So that I think that that's one of the more at least to me fascinating parts of the story is stars's connection with kiss way after the fact
0: so this book is done it's going to get you know it's going to be out there hopefully we'll all find an audience for it and you'll do really well with it you got another book in mind do you have something in your back pocket that you're working on
1: Uh, I've got a couple of things that I'm looking into right now and and settling on too early to announce, Um, but uh, hopefully there will be something shortly, yes. They
0: just seem a little weird as beautifully written and a vivid look behind the curtain of 70s hard rock. The book is available now and you can order your own copy through Amazon. I'd also like to take this opportunity to say that if you've never heard Stars, their albums are available on your favorite streaming service. I highly recommend their self-titled debut and their second album, Violation. Trust me, you won't be disappointed. Oh, and about that title, if you didn't already recognize it, it's a lyric from Cheap Tricks hit single, Surrender. I hope that you enjoyed Doug's story as much as I did. If you'd like to comment on this episode, have suggestions for future episodes, or just want to say hi, please email the Podcast at gmail.com. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast platform. The Creationist is mastered in post-production by Paul Ferrant. I'm Steve Waxman, and I created this podcast.